everyone, welcome to Desolation Radio with Dan and Nick. Hi, uh, you okay? Not bad, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. First session in our new corporate <laughs> surroundings. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Sure, yeah, great to be here. Right, so um, today marks the first of our general election specials, and today we're delighted to be joined by the world famous Seth. <laughs> Seth. <laughs> Cephologist, elections guy, <laughs> no, elections expert, <laughs> Professor Roger Scully of Cardiff University Wales Governance Centre. Welcome, Roger. Thanks, nice to be here. Is it cephologist? Cephologist, oh, cephologist, fine, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So, what does that is? What does that actually mean? Uh, I think that was originally invented something as a joke, but basically, somebody who studies elections and public opinion and the like, oh. counts numbers and so on. Um, so, if you watch the Welsh political news, or actually the British political news. You will have seen Professor Scully on TV lately in increasingly sharp number of suits and outfits. I've had a V-neck under a jacket, which I thought was nice. Three-piece suit, I saw. Have you ever considered going down the Michael Portillo route? Sort of really bright chinos. I've um, never considered going down the Michael Portillo route <laughs> on anything. Sartorial. So. <laughs> <laughs> nice pastels or anything like that. We're going to get straight into it. Basically, Professor Scully has written a couple of... Um, well, he's, he's written a lot, a lot of things about Wales. If you've, if you've ever read anything about Wales or Welsh politics, Welsh political science, he's the leading light of it, really. Um, he's written something in particular recently about the rise, the, the potential rise of the Conservatives in Wales, which has been blown up and has been picked up. And as you said, you've been, you've been everywhere, really, uh, mm-hmm. talking about this uh, potential blue surge in Wales. Yeah. Um, so we'll talk about that later. We're also going to talk about the local council elections. Uh, we're also going to go off and talk about maybe England for the first time. So yeah, branching out, branching out, get some new uh, market. Yeah, yeah, version market. Yeah, trying to buy a second home in England. Okay, so let's look back at the local council elections. What, what was what were your impressions of the, the local council elections in Wales? Uh, I think the main thing that stands out for me for local council elections is contrast between Wales and well, actually you know, the rest of mainland Britain. Um, in Wales, the Labour Party still won the local elections. I mean, they got significantly more than twice as many seats as either Plaid Cymru or the Conservatives won in, won in Wales. Labour was losing ground, but that was from an extremely um, high baseline in 2012 when they did outstandingly well. And although they had I think, a three-figure loss in terms of councillors, uh, their losses, both in terms of councillors and councils controlled, was very much at the lower end of expectations. I think Labour in Wales, in difficult times, showed actually quite impressive resilience, uh, particularly in Wales' three largest conurbations, Cardiff, Swansea and Newport, where they went into the elections in majority control of those three and came out of the elections still with majority control of, of those three against many people's expectations, including, I should say, my own. I thought Labour would probably lose more ground. I thought you know, they might well lose at least some, if not all, of Cardiff, Swansea and Newport. And they didn't. And I think you know, they did show some quite impressive resilience. Conservatives made fairly significant ground in Wales, but they're still a very long way behind. In, in fact, they're not just behind Labour, they're behind Plaid Cymru in terms of the number of councillors in Wales. They're the third party of local government in Wales. And these weren't gains on the sort of scale or to the extent that we were seeing in England. So, you know, the comparison with England and Wales, we saw a more resilient Labour and we see the Conservatives still in a significantly weaker position in local government. So what do you mean, what do you, what do you think that was? I, I mean, I didn't think that Labour could have done anything worse over the last sort of period they've been in office in Cardiff, for example. It's almost like, what more could you possibly do to get voted out? I mean, they've, they've been in turmoil internally, they've been mm. warring with each other, I mean there's other things like the streets the streets are filthy, things like that. I mean they've they've made huge cuts to the arts, um, essential frontline services, things like that. But yet they sort of they control you know, they've still control the kind of council. So why is it do you think they, they, they sort of maintain their control over these areas and what where does this resilience come from? Is it is it just a product of low turnout? Well I think yeah, the low turnout is, is clearly a factor. Um I think also, you know, we should remember, I mean, Labour have been the dominant party in Wales, and when we come on to talk in more detail in a few minutes, Labour have been the dominant party in Wales for close on a century, and you don't get to achieve that without having having some resilience and, and strength. Another thing I would draw from this is the way that the campaign was run by the Labour Party in Wales. 
it was run as Welsh Labour, very much a focus on, on Welsh Labour, just as it was in the National Assembly election last year. Um, I mean, Corbyn hardly featured, you know, Carwyn Jones featured much more prominently. It was all on about the you know, Welsh Labour, not about UK Labour Party. And I think it showed that in at least some circumstances, when Labour in Wales sort of fights as Welsh Labour, they still have the ability to win. Um, one other thing I think I should say about local elections, I mean, Ply Cymru, I took some stick online from Ply Cymru supporters and indeed one of their prominent AMs for pointing out what I thought was you know, a fairly limited scale of Ply Cymru gains. You know, they gained a little bit over 30 councillors, you know, retained control of Gwynedd, um, had, had some advances in a number of places in Wales, including some places they hadn't won council seats before, or, or not many. Was one in Bridgend? Um, I, I think they were, yeah. Was yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. A, there's a few kind of scattered around yeah. various parts of, of, all, of, of, of South Wales. But overall, this was, you know, given limit, given Labour was in some difficulty, these were fairly limited gains from Plain Cymru. Yeah. This was no great breakthrough, and... I mean, the way that some people were trying to talk this up online was, I thought, rather silly. I mean, if, so as I said on, on my blog, if if Ply Cymru really are delighted with finishing with fewer than 43% of the councillors that Labour have in Wales, mm. then I think that speaks volumes about the level of ambition in the party. While we're on this Plaid sort of, uh, it's not tangible, while we're talking about Plaid, what I thought was interesting is that they've always seemed to have, as you said, a small but limited presence in sort of Labour heartlands, they've always had a small presence in, you know, Swansea Valleys, you know, Leaper Talbot, uh, Ronda and things like that. Um, what's interesting to me is that they don't seem to have any presence in places like Newport. Mm. And after speaking to people online, is this, I mean, is this just because they haven't got the resources? I mean, to, there aren't people on the ground? Like they... Well, I think that's a problem for all of the parties mm. in Wales, actually. Um, all of them are to a greater or less extent, frankly, rather hollowed-out entities mm. these days. And you know, even the Labour Party had this great post-Corbyn membership surge, but speaking to someone who's very involved in the Labour Party in Cardiff West a few months ago, she said, well, OK, we've apparently got, allegedly, we've got the largest Labour constituency party in Wales, but you know, I looked down the list of the members and most of these people, you know, I don't know who they are. We never mm. see them. So it's normal. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, all of the parties, I think, are having problems in significant chunks of the country with with membership and with activism. We look at the local elections, the Conservatives stood candidates in I think, just over half the seats, Plaid Cymru in less than half the seats, yeah. Liberal Democrats in fewer than a quarter of the seats. Really? You know, I mean, it's, it, so I think all, all of the parties, and not just Plaid Cymru, have, have real problems with having active memberships and people willing to stand uh, in in significant parts of the country. In the case of Plaid, I think you know they still do have some structural weaknesses, particularly in the more anglicised parts of of Wales. And for all that you know, they have a leader who is not a first language Welsh speaker. For all that they have tried to broaden their appeal, they are still seen by quite a lot of people in Wales as a party primarily for Welsh speakers. And, you know that may or may not seem fair to them but I think that is still a perception which has some impact we'll talk about that a little bit later because um, I certainly think that's something that people within Plaid you know if you haven't grown up in anglicised areas like you know I've grown up in Port of Cornish grown up in Gen, I don't think people really appreciate the extent to which Plaid are actually seen as this Welsh language yeah, party very, and, and very nationalist um, my sister thought they were proper you know like almost right wing nationalists well yeah no, no, not the you know, follows it greatly, but I mean, as if that's your kind of like, um, yeah, your baseline, line, yeah, your baseline of like opinion. Yeah, yeah I mean, so it's incredible. I mean, the analyses that have been done of sort of Plaid and the great stuff that's been done by um, Richmond Jones, by Simon Brooks, on looking at the way Plaid Cymru and Welsh language have been sort of systematically smeared mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, these are fantastic words but I mean in many ways I mean I don't know if they necessarily do justice to the extent to which this fear of Welsh speakers and um, and the, sort of this idea that Plaid are the bad angry nationalist bogeyman um, I mean that's, a, that's something that will take generations to uh, to undo but anyway well, a couple of other questions about the local local elections Roger so do you think that the local elections 
are they actually fought, to what extent are they fought on local issues, you know, like litter, like dog mess and things like that, or are they, do they tend to be fought, is it just a, oh well, so and so is in the news now, so I'll vote for, the, vote for them? Um, it, it's not quite one thing or the other, it's undoubtedly the case that local circumstances can affect how people vote in local elections, they're particularly effective local representative particularly effective or indeed ineffective local council, you know, that can certainly have a big impact. But it is also true and undeniable, I think, that the national mood does a lot to uh, influence voting patterns. It is very, very well tracked and consistent pattern that parties in government at Westminster, particularly when they're unpopular, tend to lose ground in local elections. That's what you saw in England, um, wasn't it? Really? Yeah. Like the huge yeah. fallout with uh, And, you know, if, if you doubt that the national mood can have an impact on local elections, well, go speak to a whole bunch of former Liberal Democrat councillors, uh, people who lost their yeah. seats between 2011 and 2015. In many instances, you know, doubtless hardworking, decent people who've done a good job, and they lost their seats for reasons which were really little to do with them but simply that their party had become toxic to much of their former electorate. So, you know, the national mood is important. At the same time, you know, you do have an ability as a candidate, as a party locally, to do something about that, but not always enough. I mean, do you think, I mean, for me, I mean, I, obviously I understand a lot, I mean, why it happens, but it seems to sort of speak to this, it's not a, a political illiteracy, but it's something to do with the, the confusion of the scales in Welsh, British politics that... You know, people, I mean, the, the fact, for example, there's no local press. One of my colleagues is uh, Dutch. He said, for example, like he, he didn't vote in the local council elections because there wasn't anything that he could find mm-hmm. at all online about local party manifestos, who was standing, things like that. So, in the f- first instance, there's an, an absence of information about you know who's standing, what they're standing for, things like that. But as you said, the fact is, someone could be like a tireless champion mm-hmm. for their area, like getting them sort of. The, the basic and glamorous things fixed, you know, like fixing potholes, things like that, and then people will go, oh, well, I'll just you know, vote for the other party. Very like um, all the independents who turn up, just like local people who are on the internet. We had like a, quite a good one in Bridgend. Um, so it was literally called, it was called Change for Bridgend. It's like just a bunch of people who met in a Facebook group decided they'd all run as independents. And on the back of one of the brochures, it was like, oh, if you uh, need a lift to the polling station for my mobile. <laughs> Yeah. Well, there's a lot of independence um, in Wales, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, the independent tradition has been part of local government right across Britain for, for a long time. It has maintained particular strength in significant parts of Wales, most obviously in, in many of the rural parts of Wales, but we've also seen independents doing quite well this time around in places like uh, Wrexham, Blenheim, Gwent, mm. for instance. Um, and you know, sometimes these independents are effectively partisans running under sort of something of a false flag. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of the times, yeah, the other people, dissident former members uh, of a party. Um, I, mean, I think what's, you know, I suppose, you know, the, the continuing independent tradition shows is partly, you know, the lack of um, taste amongst much of the public these days for any of the political parties. Yeah. Um, but I think also, you know, some of these independents, they are effective because they, you know, carve out... Um, an appeal as being a you know, particular local champion, you know, we, we're not part of some national party, we're just concerned with the problems here. And some of them, just as some party activists have done, have found ways to communicate to local electorates in the absence of strong local yeah. media. Um, something which is like more generally one of the big challenges facing representative politicians these days, you know, with the decline of the utterly established media, particularly local media, you know, the press, how can you still effectively communicate to people? I think this is something that some people have, have developed some success in, but uh, it's, it's still think, something where lots of people are finding their way, are finding difficult. Uh, we have, for instance, in Cardiff, I think an interesting example of, of someone who's been able to use Facebook extremely effectively um, to target some often quite micro-local issues. Um, whether that would work for everyone, I don't know. But I mean, there are different things that people need to try. You know, the, the old sort of dead tree local press isn't coming back. No. I mean, there's the hyper local. So, I mean, is an interesting experiment that mm. could gain some ground. But as you said, I think there is. We have to start moving away from. Yeah. 
well, in some constituencies in Wales, you could probably knock on every single door, couldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, lots of people may well justifiably mourn the loss of stronger newspapers. But I'm afraid it's very unlikely they couldn't come back. Um, and you know, I suppose there's also challenges for communities, for representative politicians. You know, they need to find ways without that mechanism of communicating, you know, how to communicate with people. Um, some are doing it better than others. There's no more town criers either, really. No, I've I've been looking as well. For what, for a position? Yeah, pretty much. It'd be pretty good. Yeah, just start shouting at people. Yeah. Yeah, done. Um, you've written as well. I mean, there was a lot of uncontested seats in Wales. Yeah. Talk us through that, if, if you will. Well, uh, around about 8% of the local council seats were uncontested this year. Uh, as they were in 2012. That means there's basically only one candidate is nominated for the seat. I mean, you know, like at least one instance this year, nobody was nominated. <laughs> so, so they've had to uh, reopen nominations. That's awesome. Yeah. I think there's at least a couple of reasons for this. First of all, we elect a stupidly large number of councillors in Wales. Yeah. We actually elected slightly more than Scotland did, even though Scotland has 10 more local authorities than us. As a population of about five and a quarter million compared to Wales, three million it has a much larger land area to, to represent as well. And there was absolutely no justification whatsoever for the stupidly large number of councillors that we where, have in where Wales. It, where does it come from then? Like, why have we got so many? I think you know, back when the map was being redrawn in the 1990s, we added in probably too many councils, and I think um, made, made each of those or many of those individual councils too large. Roughly half of the councils in Wales have a an elected membership greater than that of the National Assembly. I think that's patiently ridiculous. Yeah, it's um, and There's another factor, though, in Wales. The electoral system we use, uh, we use the sort of somewhat bastardised version of first-past-the-post mm. that's often used for local elections, um, where it's used both here and in England. Scotland uses single transferable vote. Uh, and what single transferable vote generally does is mean that there are quite a few different parties that have something to fight for. Mm. Maybe in, in a multi-member ward to win a second seat, or sometimes even a third seat in an area of particular strength. Them, other smaller parties may have a chance of winning one seat at least in in a not so strong area for them. Uh, so, you know, we had a situation this time, as we had in 2012, no uncontested seats in Scotland and eight percent of them in Wales, and that is a quiet national disgrace. Yeah. It's well. Would you say it's almost symptomatic of the, the different trajectory of the two countries, and mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the state of the public sphere in respect in Scotland and Wales, respectively. Going to move on to England now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so first, first. But I mean, how did you? What did you make of the the sort of local council elections in England? Conservatives did very well. Labour didn't. Uh, and as in Wales, the Liberal Democrats uh, had have had a pretty bad time as well. I, d- I did think in Wales and indeed in England, the Liberal Democrats almost couldn't fail to do better than they'd done um, the last time these seats came up, but in some places they did fail to, d- Tim to do better. Tim Farron is not landing, is he? No. That's one of the stories of British politics at the moment. The uh, hashtag Liberal Democrat fight, Lib Dem fight back is, is making <laughs> very, very limited progress indeed. It's I mean, one, one thing which, which is changing, of course, is, is UKIP. I mean, in England, we were fighting seats which were last fought in 2013. When the local elections, UKIP got a, sort of a national equivalent vote share of around about 22%. This time around, they were getting derisory vote totals. We're seeing UKIP in Wales as well. Their poll rating, sort of, you know, the graphs are falling off the edge of a cliff. Mm. And you know, UKIP seemed to be rapidly descending back into minor party status, with at the moment the principal beneficiaries of that being the Conservatives. So, is it? I mean, is it just the case? Well, we'll talk about this in the general election polls in a sec. But is it just the case that the people that voted UKIP no longer need to vote UKIP because Theresa May has taken over the mantle of being a sort of chief British nationalist lunatic? Well, I think a um, couple of things. I mean, UKIP themselves, you know, they've lost their major asset, Nigel Farage. You know, love him, loathe him. He was very effective at, at what he did. The party has lost some of its major donors. It's internal chaos. Um, and it's lost much of its raison d'etre. So Theresa May has you know, promised to deliver on Brexit. She's also moved on to quite a lot of UKIP's socially conservative, yeah. broader political agenda. And she's essentially taken away most of the reason for voting hmm. UKIP. 
I'm not, I initially thought when she was denying she was going to have an election that the plan from Theresa May would be, you know, while you could create internal chaos, move on to their territory, squeeze them back down to the minor party status, and then move back to the centre in time for the general election. Mm. Um, she's clearly decided she doesn't need to implement the last stage of that plan. <laughs> uh, and it seems to be working very effectively for her yeah. at the moment. And in the most recent Welsh Political Barometer poll, we found that of those people... You know, that we know voted for UKIP in 2015, fully two thirds of them now supporting the Conservatives for the general election. Yeah, that's what we've seen with like um, Wales and stuff. It's just you can kind of see now like where that Tory landslide is going to come from. It's pretty chilling. Unless they decide to stay at home and watch like uh, I don't know, 1950s programs. Were there any bright, any sort of green shoots for Labour at all in English? Uh, there wasn't a great deal good for Labour in the local elections, except you know they did obviously they won the Greater Manchester and Merseyside mm. elected mayoral contests. And where Labour did better, such as uh, with the victories Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester, with the victory in Merseyside, and in Wales, it was largely with people running sort of their own independent mm. campaigns, not you know, frankly. Um, putting a great deal of emphasis on the UK-wide Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn. Mm. Um, briefly, before we move on to general elections, um, Scotland was, I mean, the SNP were up again, weren't they? In, uh... Yeah, I mean, the SNP um, came first again, as they always seem to these days in Scotland. They didn't completely sweep the board. Partly, you know, the electoral system mitigates against that. But also, you know, if you look at their vote share, it wasn't quite at the same sort of levels, you know, they had in the general election two years ago. And it does seem as if you know, the really high points of the SNP tide that we saw in 2015, um, have, that has ebbed to some degree. Um, but they are still clearly the strongest party in Scotland by some way. The other major thing we saw is the continuing decline of Scottish Labour. And they are now pretty much firmly established as the third party in may Scotland. Well, may as well pack it up at um, this stage, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, the, cons- the Conservatives seem to very much claim the territory of being the principal voice for unionism. Yeah. yeah. And for, for the union in Scotland I now. I was going to say, I think I saw, uh, saw an article saying they projected to win as high as like 18 seats in the general election. Yeah, I mean, I think the Conservatives are, you know, for the first time since 1992, going to win more than one seat in Scotland at the general election, very probably. Labour could well end up struggling just to retain their one seat. And you know the party, the chairs, pa- yeah. I mean, the, the Labour Party in Scotland does suffer from, I'm afraid, a paucity of talented leadership. You know, because mm. Doug Dale, I think, is a sincere and um, dedicated person, but doesn't really seem to have the ability to cut through to the public like either Nicola Sturgeon or Ruth Davidson do. More generally, I mean, I think, frankly, and I was talking about this with somebody the other day. Why would anyone in Scotland vote for Scottish Labour at the moment, unless it was sort of family habit? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you want you know, to defend the union, Scottish Conservatives are doing that more clearly. If you want to vote for more autonomy, you know, the SNP or, or moderate centre-left party, the SNP maybe have more to offer you. If you want, can't stand the SNP but still want to vote for a distinctive left or centre voice, the Greens in Scotland often seem to be at least as attractive as the Scottish Labour Party. Um, you know, it's, it's rare to see a party go into you know, decline quite as rapidly as Scottish Labour have done. And there's no signs of that decline coming to an end anytime soon. Do you think, I mean, is that a hangover, the fact that you're know, doing the, the referendum, they attach themselves so strongly to this unionism that essentially, you know, as you said, that they've become completely pointless because um, there's a lot of movements on social media that the people that, as Scotland increasingly becomes divided between you know, those that want independence and those that want the union, um, the Conservatives will be that sort of vessel. Well, Ruth Davidson and the Scottish Conservatives have like, very cleverly carved that out as as their niche to be you know, the clearest voice in favour of the union. Um, and Scottish Labour, I mean, yeah, they found themselves on the wrong end of a lot of, of, a lot of their traditional support mm. in the Scottish referendum. A lot of that support jumped ship pretty much immediately to the SNP, and there's no signs of Scottish Labour finding reasons to get them back. I also think a lot yeah. of that seems to be, well, anecdotally, I mean, anyone who knows me knows my views on the Labour Party probably, but, I mean, it seems as if a lot, I mean, the fact that, you know, Scottish Labour ran... Mm. 
the councils and things like mm-hmm. that, just as they have them in Wales. Mm-hmm. I think people, a lot of people just got sick of the way they behaved and the sort of the nepotism and, and corruption and things like that. Well, um, I mean, that's the sort of thing I think can happen. I don't think it's a specifically Labour no, Party phenomenon. It's, not, phenomenon. No, it's, it's a phenomenon yeah. of one sustained one-party domination, yeah. which I think is generally an unhealthy state of affairs, whatever party yeah. that is. Yeah, you know, BBC Scotland did a very good TV documentary a few months after the 2015 election looking at the decline of Scottish Labour and it was it was pretty damning about the Scottish Labour Party but effectively so because basically Scottish Labour was damned by its own people who were who were talking about it and, and one of them, Ian Davidson, former Scottish MP talked about you know, people who were in positions of power in these local authorities not because they had any great talents or anything beyond connections with the local Labour Party. As Davidson put it, people who who were there because they were there because they were there. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, that's the sort of thing which is always liable to happen when you get, you know, very long periods of one party domination. Um, and you know, we have had that sort of thing in parts of Wales. I mean, there are, I think, you know, some of the South Wales valleys, you could say that for not far short of 100 years, there are places where the only significant electoral contests have been those for the Labour Party nomination. Yeah, within it. And that's, you know, not generally a, a very healthy political state of affairs. I mean, is it not? I mean, what's interesting to me is the fact that I would say it was an inevitable sort of inexorable process that the one-partyism will produce alienation, alienation and disaffection and the sort of hollowing out of the hegemony of that party, which is what sort of happened in Scotland, wasn't it? Eventually... Something just gave, and people just jumped ship to the SNP. But what's interesting to me is that at the moment, Labour seems to be creeping on uh, in Wales. Um, but we'll we'll get on to that now, I think. So you wrote an article. I mean, the first Welsh poll of the general election, the the, the blog that will go down in infamy. Um, so you wrote, you know, something extraordinary could be about. Do you mind if I quote? I'm going to quote. Quote you straight back to you again. Uh, so you said, something extraordinary could be about to happen. Wales on the brink of an electoral earthquake. The Conservatives appear to be on course to win the majority of Welsh parliamentary seats for the first time in the democratic era, while Labour faces losing a general election in Wales for the first time since 1918. These are the sensational findings from the latest Welsh political brass. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's funny. So. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that was not hyperbole. Uh, it, was, it was a remarkably fortuitous coincidence. We happened to have a Welsh poll just about to go out um, the day, as it turned out, it was just ready to go, and then and then Theresa May called a general election, and uh, we you know, we started the poll the following day. We, you know, we already had it planned and ready to go. Uh, Release and, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Theresa, yeah, we're ready. And and, uh, and what it found was, I think, something quite extraordinary. Is extraordinary in the context, the very long historical context of the Conservative Party's weakness in Wales, which goes right back to the 1850s. And the 1850s is the last time the Tories won a general election in Wales. And also the Labour Party's very long-standing domination here. The last person to defeat Labour in a general election in Wales was Lloyd George, and he had to win a world war to do it in 1918. Um, Yet, we found a poll with the Conservatives 10 points ahead of, of Labour in Wales. There's been a subsequent poll which has shown Labour rallying somewhat, but the Conservatives still remaining six points ahead. And if we get a result anything like that, you know, this will be the first election since 22, when Labour haven't won a major- yeah, the most votes and maybe the most seats in Wales. I, and I think that would be genuinely historic. That was interesting in one of, um, another one of your uh, blogs that you were putting... Um you know, how uh, people viewed, like, political leaders, and Theresa May comes on top, beating Carwin and Leanne Wood. You know, someone who's only been to Wales recently, and um, for a few times, and still still beating both of them. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, we, we have a subsequent poll which has Theresa May down a little bit, but still very much at the same level as Carwin Jones and Leanne Wood, who for a couple of years or more have been fairly clearly established as the most popular party leaders in Wales. And to have you know, a Conservative an English Conservative Prime Minister as the most popular or joint most popular political leader in Wales is something we haven't seen for a very long time, if ever. Uh, and I think it you know, shows you know, she is still doing well with much of the public, as a part of the public. Um, and in the context of this general election, 
the really salient contrasts between her and Jeremy Corbyn, who even in you know, Labour's ultimate bastion, ultimate heartland of Wales, Australia um, very much fails to convince very large proportions of the electorate. I mean, there's got to be. I mean, I'm a fan of Corbyn, as most people will know, but. What I mean, there has to be something in this. I mean, we'll talk about like reasons in, in a bit, but I mean, there was that uh, the other poll. I don't know if it was YouGov. I mean, I don't know if they, are they your right. YouGov are your rival pollsters, are they? No, we work with you. Work with yeah. YouGov. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, uh, well, that's right. Because I asked you before tonight. Um, but you know, they were there was the people asked what are the, you know, the the policies are broken down, and it was you know, in, in terms of agreement with policy, people had. People were largely in agreement and preferred the Labour policies of sort of you know, nationalisation of rail, things like that, like, um, like getting rid of student fees and things like that. Um, but yeah, who do you prefer to run the country, the Conservatives, who's the best leader, Theresa May? And, um, and then this other guy I follow um, put this sort of uh, meme up or whatever, and it was like, um, why do people keep saying this mantra, like strong and stable, strong and stable, strong and stable, repeating it? And then he showed like an interview with this um, young couple, and they were like, "How are you going to be voting?" Uh, and they were like, "Oh, Theresa May. Um, I don't know anything about politics, but everyone says she's strong and stable." Um, and it's just one of those. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, there has to be something. The fact that it, if you if you repeat something just constantly, relentlessly through, if they that, that really clever, let's face it, thing they did of just take taking out adverts from the local press everywhere in, in in the UK, so every local instead of has got strong stable leadership in front of it. I mean Yeah, well I, there's a few points there, Dan, that you bring up. I mean, first one, as, as you're just saying there, you know, this sort of mantra which you know, has become a bit of a joke with lots of people, just the endless repetition of strong and stable leadership. But of course, you know, people like us sitting around this table are something of political obsessives. Most people are not like that. Most people pay little attention to politics yeah, like, nearly all the time and as I think you know a good rule of thumb as was explained to me once by a, a senior party campaigner is that when your message when you've repeated your message so many times that the thought of saying it once more makes you want to puke mm. is probably just about the time when it's starting to get through to much of the public um, and you know Parties know that certainly you know, the, the, the cleverer campaigns are based on some very simple, direct, clear messages which are just repeated and repeated and repeated and hammered home, um, and that's what the Conservatives are doing. Is now, that the case with um, uh, the American election as well, with Trump make America yeah, great again? Yeah, and that like yeah. stated something when Hillary's was oh, I'm with her. Just you know, there's there's no kind of um, yeah. Well, I think also we look at the Brexit referendum. You know, the messaging of the Leave campaign was much better than the messaging of the Remain campaign. Yeah. I had a clear, simple message. I mean, lots of people might think the message was bollocks, but um, the message was clear, simple, direct, yeah. and repeated. Times now. Another thing you mentioned a few minutes ago, Dan, was about the policies and so on. It's, it's perfectly true you can run polling on a number of individual Labour policies and find quite a lot of public support for them. But it is also, we should know, possible to run very similar polling on quite a few right-wing, right, in some mm. cases you might even say far-right policies on matters like yeah. the death penalty, immigration, um, some attitudes to education, and law and order and so on. So, you know, depending on exactly what you include yeah. in the polls, you can apparently see the public as being quite left-wing innately or, or quite right-wing. There is a more general issue, though, as well as you know, the individual policies of just perceived competence and ability to to carry them out. And the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, both because of Corbyn himself and in the state the party's been in, is seen by a lot of the public as simply lacking in basic competence in a way that the Conservatives are not. Uh, and yet for many people, you know, they will see a general election as the need to choose a Prime Minister, choose people to run the country, and the Labour Party under Corbyn have failed to convince many people that they are up to the job. I mean, it's interesting, the, the, the idea of competence and, and strength sort of thing. I mean, the guy's been obviously under attack from his own side yeah. from the, the moment he... It's almost, I mean, in many ways, this whole thing is 
I, I want to write a bit, and it's it's, it's almost a return to the Miliband sort of coach debate of the sixties, whatever about the limits of parliamentary democracy. Because you know, as soon as you get a, a moderate, mild social democrat in the door, he gets completely knifed in the back by his own side, and that's before the entire press and the political establishment turn it. So I mean, but that's it, what's interesting. I mean, it's almost how can you convey a message of strength and competence when you are utterly bombarded with negative sort of stories leaked from your own side. There's, a, there's an article in Jacobin by Matt Zarp, cousin, the guy who used to be uh, Corbyn's press officer, and it was absolutely fascinating. Like you said, that um, the press, I mean, firstly, um, the, the his own side, the Labour HQ, would be leaking stories to the press before Corbyn had even made an announcement. Um, a lot of the time, they were just, a lot of them were rubbish, just smears and things like that. And then he said when they did little things like campaign, like they organised a campaign, uh, like a, a meeting or a, a public meeting, things like that, he said in for May or things like that, you know, there's this earnestness about the press, like to, to discuss policy with it. But he said it was, it was clear that amongst the sort of political press in the UK, the main thing was let's find something sort of weird and, and professional about the cabinet. Nothing to do with politics, almost, you know, like the way... He's dressed or spoken to, or, or things like that. Yeah. You could uh, amount of degrees he's bowed. Yeah, yeah things like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, I think you know uh, we can understand from some of this experience, from the, some experience in the Labour Party in the nineteen eighties, why you know Tony Blair and people around him ran the Labour Party in the way they did, mm. because you know they had very good memories of how Labour had been treated in the nineteen eighties, and as one of uh, Blair's chief advisers put it, you know. We did what was necessary to get Labour hearing in in much of the popular press, just to be able to get people to even listen to the Labour Party. Yes, the press. Well, yes, I mean, sure, I can understand why lots of people on the left would feel uneasy about that. But Sam, but did, I think Sam it's all, did it as well. Yeah, but it's also possible. Yeah, it's also possible to understand why party leaders would feel the need to do that. Um, because you know, you've seen your predecessors get absolutely slaughtered, find it impossible to get your message over. I think that's uh, the thing with Corbyn in particular is like, <clears throat> because there's just so much like opposition against mm. him everywhere. It's hard to tell when there is actual genuine criticism because then it kind of yeah. falls. Oh well, yeah, but it's, it, as you say, it's, it's an absolute whirlwind of bullshit, isn't it? It's just, it, I mean, yeah. so little of it is about politics, and so much of it is just about well, just. Slating the man personally for no other reason. But that manifesto as well. I mean, it's not it's not particularly radical in what they say. Like some of the stuff was no, quite across the like, Labour Party in yeah. twenty eleven. Yeah. I think you can also understand here yeah, what how and why sort of you know, the Blairites ran the Labour Party internally. You know, this emphasis on control and mm. message discipline and um, keeping things with a fairly tight cabal around the Prime Minister and the, and, you know, and the Chancellor. Um, because you know, keeping in sort of order, disciplined political party, keeping the message consistent is very difficult. Uh, and Andrew Rawnsley's book on New Labour, they went on. Um, that's why Matt the Manelsons at the HQ when they were just relentlessly briefed on. You have to just repeat yeah. the same message basically on any press release. I mean, so that's why that's where the, in the loop comes from, isn't it? I think just that relentless discipline of like say the same thing, say this, yes. don't go off message. Yeah. But I think we also have to. Acknowledge that Jeremy Corbyn, yeah, sure, the press are unfair to him at times, just as they are unfair to Ed Miliband, unfair to other people. Hate but war, but he has been exposed pretty horribly for his own shortcomings, and, and in a sense, we shouldn't be surprised at this. He was an obscure backbencher who never even held a junior opposition spokespersonship. You know, obscure backbencher for thirty-two years, and suddenly he was pitched straight from that into party leadership. And why should we expect him to be any good at it? Yeah. What, 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 would you, what would you say the main things he, I mean I mean I'm not going to defend him to the hill but what would you say the main things he's done that, what are the shortcomings that... well I mean he, he has no experience in party management uh, and I think you know, that's shown at times prior to his first Labour Party conference speech as party leader he'd apparently never used an autocue well and you know, just all these sort of basic things which people get trained in yeah um, you know, and he he sort of suddenly had to go from doing none of it to doing all of it. Yeah, that's true. And that's I think true. that's an extraordinarily difficult ask for anyone, no matter what their ideological position or whatever. I mean, the analogy I've used with my students sometimes is: imagine someone being like a driving instructor in a quiet little town somewhere for thirty-two years, 
and then suddenly going and becoming a Formula One racing driver. I mean, they're both driving jobs, yeah. <laughs> but and the demands of one are very different from the other. And I think that's roughly the scale of the leap that Corbyn had to make. And you know, I, I was at the Welsh Labour Conference in Llandudno a few weeks ago. Um, you know, I stood at the back of the hall when Corbyn made his speech there. And I have to say, without wishing to be unfair, it was utterly inadequate. It was you know, nowhere near what you would expect in terms of the performance of a party leader. And I've been in the hall, people like David Cameron, you know, seeing you know, what a, a good political performer can do. And Corbyn was so far off the pace, it was frankly embarrassing. Just in terms of delivery? Yeah, just in terms of the technicalities of how you deliver a major set piece conference I speech. as well what you're saying with him being a backbench and you know, playing very obscure and then for him almost to be pushed in the limelight it's quite easy for people to project like their hopes onto him as well so oh, they're yeah, like, of course, yeah. like an obscured yeah. version of what he or well, who he is well yes and I mean there's there's been some very interesting stuff written about why Corbyn was so successful in, in oh, the Richard 2015 leadership race yeah. um, I think you know there's, there's all sorts of long history about you know how the moderates in the Labour Party discredited themselves with the brand Blair, Brownite Blairite wars and Iraq and all sorts of things. One of the other things that someone said to me at the time was he was the only candidate that didn't sound afraid. Corbyn, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a, in a way, because he had he had nothing to lose yeah. really at the time. Um, in terms of the personal abuses received, it is off topic a bit, but I remember that there was one sort of leak at the time when basically the Labour sort of moderates. Essentially, sort of imply that they were trying to break him as a man because he, no, no, because he's he's quite old, and because, as you said, Roger, he, he's had no experience in the limelight. It was almost well, let's just abuse him to the extent that we will just make him smash stand his windows. Um, he, what was this? He didn't. He needs to walk onto the Neil Kinnock. Well, all right. <laughs> what was that song you said? I don't know. Actually, probably best. But that's, but that's the thing with him, though, is like, they've, like I know, <coughs> momentum and basically just obviously just almost exists solely on Twitter. But they're trying to project him as like this kind of you know cool guy who's who knows like uh, urban culture is like. But I mean, that's the thing is, I mean, he's got, yeah, he's got like the grime vote, and like I said, I mean, I I like him as a I, I like him as a man. I think he's I mean, obviously, in terms of a person. To person, I mean, like, Theresa May is barely even human. You know, yeah, what I mean, like, like a Anyway, let's go, let's go back to the general elections in Wales. Um, yeah. A couple of things, that we're not, not going to uh, criticise or anything like that, but I mean, you said the obviously the Conservatives have never done particularly well in Wales, but I mean, they have always had a strong presence, haven't they? That's the caveat. They've always been a strong second in a lot of places. Um, well, because it's from 97 when they were wiped out completely in the general election. Um, but I mean, they, you know, even in those years, they were, they were second in the popular vote. Uh, you know, there has always been a presence of conservatism in yeah. in Wales in in some in some shape or form. Um, nonetheless, you know, the Conservatives have consistently underperformed in Wales compared to England by around sort of ten to fifteen percentage points uh, in general elections, going back many many decades. Uh, and their underperformance goes beyond anything that can be accounted for simply by Wales being more poor and more working class. Yeah. Even once you adjust for that, the Conservatives yeah. have done significantly worse in Wales for a very, very long time. The Welsh effect. Yeah. Now, there seems it seems as if at least some of that may be unwinding, and a big part of why that is happening appears to be Brexit. We all know that Wales voted for Brexit, and by pitching this as a Brexit election, the Conservatives appear to have been particularly successful um, and getting a lot of support of people who voted for Brexit, notably those um, people who ran 13.5% of the Welsh electorate in 2015, yeah, who, who voted for UKIP. Mm. So um, you also, I mean, you said the 10 seats that could change hands or you know, win, be won by the Conservatives, Allen and Deeside, Bridgend, Cardiff South and Penarth, Cardiff West, which is currently the Labour one, but went Conservative in 83, I think that's the first time, though, wasn't it, in... In like a hundred years or something like that. Cloyd South, Delin, Newport East, Newport West, Wrexham, and and it's more. One of the things I'm, I mean, yes, Wales may go conservative, but those are areas which have gone conservative in the past. Aren't they? I mean, they're, they're far more complex areas. Like Bridgend is not is obviously a Labour seat, but Bridgend itself is an interesting local authority, and it is very divided. You've got like a Labour sort of traditional Welsh working class areas to the north, and you've got 
quite affluent places to the south. So when it became a constituency as well, as first was in 1983, it was Tory. Yeah, it's not that. It's not that. Pretend's not a natural constituency. I mean, there is. A, I mean, I think you know, the caveat is that it's not like Merthyr, the Rhonda yeah. are going to yeah. go conservative. It's these well, what we yeah. call British Wales traditionally. Yeah, but it, it would still seem unlikely the Conservatives are going to win any of what we call sort of the hardcore Valley seats. Yeah. Apart from anything else, they're starting from a very long way behind mm. in all of those places. You know, if, if we wake up on the day after the election and find the Ronda has the Conservative MP, I, I would still be pretty surprised, <laughs> uh, as indeed I suspect with the Conservative candidate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You're probably wondering <laughs> how I got here. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, I mean, it, it does seem as if the Conservatives are likely to make some gains, unless you know, there's a big turnaround in the last three weeks of the campaign, or you know the polls have been getting horribly wrong all the way along. Now, I, you know, the, the ten seats you just listed there uh, were just those. If you plug in the latest poll numbers, do the uniform national swing calculation of changes since the last general election, those are the ten which come out with the Conservatives marginally, you know, uh, with the Conservatives ahead. In some instances such as the two Cardiff seats, only very marginally heads. And there's certainly plenty of scope in, in many of these contests for local campaigns to, to make the difference. I think you know, a lot of these places are places that the Conservatives would not have been targeting, would not have been expecting to be seriously in the game there. Uh, you would not have had candidates in place you know, working the seat, nursing the seat for some months or years beforehand. And I think there is the possibility, you know, if, if a party is advancing quite a broad front, that you can end up suddenly going from distant second places to very good second places, but still falling short in quite a few instances. Yeah. Um, so I, I think Conservative advances at this general election in Wales are overwhelmingly likely. The big question, the scale of those advances, and we have seen, as I said, in this year's local council elections, and in last year's National Assembly election, you know, on the defensive, the Labour Party actually being quite resilient and holding ground um, maybe more effectively than many people had expected. So let's go back. I mean, talking about these traditional Labour seats like you know, the Ronda, Blaine Gwent, things like that, do you think the Conservative vote share will rise in those places? I would expect the Conservative vote share will rise in almost every seat in Wales. Interesting. Uh, there's 40 of them. I would not be amazed if we see all 40 of them seeing the Conservative vote share rise. Or, mm. yeah, I would be very surprised if we don't see the clear majority of them with the rising Conservative vote share. But in some of these Valley seats, you know, the Conservatives are so far behind, there's so little Conservative tradition, it would still be very surprising if they can actually win the seat. Um, but you know, I was just looking at the map today, and it looks, you know, on the sort of current polling, we're seeing that there is no safe Labour territory in Wales anywhere north of the Merthyr Tidwell and Romney constituency there. Uh, all of their seats in North Wales, you know, Unismore and there's a clutch of seats in the North East, are all potentially vulnerable. So are both of the Newport seats, so are Bridgend, so potentially are, you know, things are going really badly. I think, you know, the couple of the Cardiff seats, uh, Swansea West... I'm not saying that all of these seats are going to go, yeah. but seats which we would not have imagined yeah. being under threat in the past, now you know, there's at least some possibility that they are in the game. What do you make of the, um, the, the sort of this weird divide between the Welsh Labour campaign and the, the Corbett, you know, the fact they've distanced themselves from the manifesto, the, sort of the, the, the leaked Labour manifesto, is that a chance? I mean, how can... How, well, firstly, how could Corbyn win? I mean, if he could, and how could Welsh Labour rally? Yeah, I, I don't think Corbyn can win the election. At all? Um, no. So, uh, I mean, you, you can't change around fairly deep-rooted public perceptions of somebody that quickly. Um, I think the Labour Party in Wales are playing the best card they have left which is Welsh Labour playing up the First Minister, who's still a fairly popular character. Um, you know, that, that is sort of a brand which goes down better than the UK Labour Party brand does at the moment. Now, the question is, I think, to what extent that will be remotely convincing in the context of a UK general election, where you know, yeah. much of the media, particularly London-based media, will be playing, you know, emphasising this as a Theresa May versus Jeremy Corbyn contest. 
you know, Labour in Wales are doing what they should do, you know, playing the best card they have left. But it's still going to be a difficult election for them. There's, um, there's some talk, and I know it's been denied by the Labour Party, of a progressive alliance against the Tories in Wales. Do you think that's anything to... Well, nomination's already closed. And, I mean, these sorts of things take time to to arrange and, and to work. And, you know, with, you know th- three weeks from election with nominations already closed is not really the time to be trying to do that. No. I mean, mathematically, could it work? I mean, like, I mean, SNP, Plaid, Green, Labour, possibly the Lib Dems, could that mean that? Well, um, I mean, the concession would probably be an independent, I mean, completely independent Scotland. I mean, we, we saw in the last general election when there was a significant possibility of a hung parliament, the Conservatives very effectively used against Labour the, the, the idea of you know, the SNP yeah. sort of you know, having a whip hand over them or something. And um, if the election were to get close, and there's no signs of it doing so at the moment, but if the election were to get close, the Conservatives would just wheel out that card again, probably to very much the same effect. I did read a good article saying that the problem with the idea of a progressive alliance is there's not that many progressive voters. So you kind of yeah, but well, I mean, I, I just don't I don't see what other option there is other than for them to target marginal. So we were looking at, at you know in Wales how would that work? I mean, maybe Plaid could back Labour in in the Cardiff and the other marginals and Cloyd and speaks, things like speaks that. Speaks a lot of like the Plaid people on Twitter. Though, just in, like, return for, in, return, in return for Cara Diggian. it's it's just not going to happen this time around I'm afraid it, it, it would need much longer preparation um, and it would need in some cases the bearing of old enmities which are, are pretty deep yeah and, I, I don't I don't think that's really appreciated the extent I mean as we saw on Frank Gannett recently I don't think people call it the progressive alliance like let's say from London necessarily appreciate the, the antipathy um, that exists between sort of Labour and Pride on, on, the, on sort of on the local level We'll go. We're going to stay with Wales for the time. Well, well, firstly, what do you, could Labour make any gains in England, and if so, where do you, where would you see them? Um, it, it's doubtful Labour going to be in the market for many gains. I mean, they're they're struggling to get close to their vote share of last time, and general election the Conservatives currently about ten points ahead of their vote share last time. So. You know, it's just very difficult in that context to be looking to make gains. I think this is primarily a general election where the Labour Party is looking to hold on to much of right. what it has at the moment uh, as it can. There may be one or two here and there, but I would be surprised if there are many. Um, and then similarly in Wales. I mean, well, Wales, I think it is purely a defensive operation from the Labour Party. Gower, on the face of it, is a very marginal seat, the most marginal seat in in Britain, majority of one, but with the sorts of swings we're seeing in the national polls, I think we're going to have to see an extraordinary Labour Party campaign to put them in with a serious chance of recapturing even Gower. Really? Yes. Almost unthinkable. Uh, I wouldn't say quite. I wouldn't say quite. Yeah, I wouldn't say unthinkable for, for Labour to win it, but yeah, it would have been unthinkable for them to lose it until yeah. quite recently. And Gower is quite a wealthy area, isn't it? Well, it has, has become more so, and you know, say the Conservatives won it last time, they have incumbency, but most importantly, they have the national move. Um, I'll plug an article I've been writing for a while, but I mean, I think it's important when we're discussing this to be aware of the sort of the historical regional differences in Wales, isn't it? And, and we'll do another show maybe on this, this sort of large, these like the border of Wales that, and the places that are likely to go Conservative are historically not the same as the rest of Wales and we'll, we'll talk about that in another another episode I mean let's say I was that guy on Twitter Dr Owen the guy that constantly talks about how amazing yeah. um, the Labour are going to win kind of Dr Owen but, but, but what would there be I mean so Labour is purely just going to be holding on trying to match what trying to match the vote share in the Miliband I, I, I think so I mean that's you know unless they can turn things around very quickly it looks like a defensive operation uh, and you know, speaking to one or two people in, in the Labour Party in Wales, I mean, some of them actually found that you know, that shock first Welsh poll quite useful in the sense that it galvanised people, rallied people behind the flag. Yeah. And so many people who are not Corbynistas at all, uh, one or two, two of whom are even considering sitting the election out, mm. have sort of you know, come back on board in the sense that you know, this is not about getting Jeremy Corbyn elected Prime Minister, this is about saving the Labour Party. Yeah. as a functioning serious entity 
uh, possibly you know, for a post-Corbyn, post-election future. I'm, I'm, I'm torn, I mean, because, I mean, the anarchist in me just wants the Labour Party to die so a new, more radical movement can sort of start, but... Um, at the same time, Theresa, I mean, the, the prospect of Theresa May in charge is pretty ripped. Yeah, it seems just a good idea. But then, would they just move everything to the right and you'd have the left would have much more work to do with ground to gain back? I mean, like, speaking about the Pied people, just like, no, not working with Labour, I hate them. Fair enough. But then, you know, it's not like uh, Pied's going to shine in 20 or 2022, is it? Let's talk about Pied to, to finish. What are Pied going to be aiming for and what do you think they can expect? I think. Clyde's first task is to hold their current three seats. They're probably favourites to do so in, in all three of those. Um, beyond that, Anis Morn looks like you know, you know, a real possibility. They came very close last time. Labour are probably a bit weaker this time round. And they have as a candidate the only man who's ever won Anis Morn for Clyde in a Westminster election, Yeamon Jones. Yeah. Um, possible... Uh, um, Joker card is the Conservatives. You know their national tide yeah. is so strong that you know on our most recent poll projection we actually had them very narrowly winning on this one. Mm. Um, but you know the Conservatives don't have much organisation there. Their candidate is uh, a young, very talented person, but not somebody with particularly high profile in this one. Um, who's, so, who's that? Uh, Thomas David Davis, right. uh, former Welsh Office Special Advisor. And he did a form PhD student of mine. Oh, right. <laughs> Star Wars, yeah. Um, used to be your apprentice. Yeah, very, I mean, a very so, t- talented person, but I think not someone with a particularly strong profile on a small one. So, uh, you know, that may be one of those seats where, you know, the conserv- I think local profile is very important there yeah. and where the Conservatives may well end up a bit underperforming their poll rating. What about Keradigian? Keradigian for Plaid is going to be difficult because, I mean, Mark Williams is a is a very strong constituency MP. Mm. Uh, he held the seat even in the sort of Liberal Democrat nightmare of 2015. He still held the seat with around 3,000 majority. That's going to be a long shot for Plaid. And they have a new candidate there, again, a young, talented person. Um, but he may need this election to build his profile uh, before having a more serious shot at it in the future. Okay. Um... Roger, thanks so much for coming on. Is yeah, there any, any shout-outs you'd like to give to anyone? Shout-outs? <laughs> Just like you do on all the other like new shows. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that they've cut out, they've answered out, they've been... Yeah. <laughs> My homies back here. Yeah. Yes. Doing well, I'd, I'd, I'd just like to say that... Um, so that's what the, um, ne- next Monday, um, we should be having uh, the next Ross Opinion poll, obviously, see how things are going. Um, and, you know... If, if it suddenly shows the Conservative vote plummeting and Labour back in a big lead to Wales, then uh, <laughs> yeah, we, may have to, uh, yeah. we may have to edit this uh, this show a bit. But um, yeah, I'd be surprised if we see as rapid a turnaround as that. We're not seeing it in the GB wide polls at the moment. Um, so I'd be surprised if we see it in the Welsh next Welsh one either. I have to say this has been probably the most depressed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, we ain't really, don't we? Yeah. Just, just the, yeah. I mean, we... The, you want a vision of the future. The, the, the news is... Uh, yes. to, to, to make the most depressing episode of, of something called Desolation Radio, it's quite a distinction. I appreciate the honour very much. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to give you a black t-shirt to commemorate it. Okay. Um, all right, Nathan. Um, saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2 on the weekend. Pleasant surprise. Great man. Yeah, my man, Kurt Russell in there. So another shout out to him. Second time in a row. Yeah, it was actually... Miles. Go and watch it. Um, I know. Shout out to my family, to Graham, to Joe. Um, and shout out to everyone who keeps listening, keep retweeting us, guys. We're going to be doing a few more general election, horrifically depressing general election uh, <laughs> specials. We're going to do one on the Labour Party. We're going to do one on Plaid. Um, we won't, probably won't do one on the Tories because we don't like them. No. Um, but yeah, keep listening. Uh, we'll post some more links from Roger. Um, so thanks very much. See yeah. ya. Cheers, bye. You are alone, child. There is only darkness for you, and only death for your people. These ancients are just the beginning. I will command a great and terrible army. Uh, uh, uh.
We will sail to a billion worlds. We will sail until every light has been extinguished. You are strong, child. But I am beyond strength. I am the end.